Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. So the panel session today is really going to be focusing uh, on a recent activity that's been that's really highlighted the um, you know, the the really positive nature of collaboration that's now occurring um, within the energy industry. So a couple of weeks ago, um, the Future Electricity Market Summit um, was held uh, up in Sydney, and that was a collaboration between uh, the International Energy Agency, um, the ANU's Energy Change Institute, uh, and also the uh, Energy Research Institutes uh, for Australia uh, and the Energy Security Board. And the focus of the Future Electricity Markets Summit was to identify the key challenges that electricity markets are going to face uh, in the future and to think about the changes that are going to be necessary uh, in order to accommodate the high DER, high renewable future that has been forecast uh, here in Australia. So the program uh, ran over three days. It was a combination um, of presentations uh, and also breakout sessions. I think uh, one of the key aspects uh, of the forum um, that was so positive was that about 50% of the time was actually spent being able to discuss. And when we think about the significant challenges that we're facing today, that's obviously something that's really important, bringing together the best minds in the world to focus on these challenges, but actually allowing them to tease through the details um, of how the transition, particularly in markets, uh, is going to occur. So our panel session today is really going to focus um, on the insights and reflections um, from people uh, who were uh, attending the Future Electricity Market Summit. Uh, and then we're obviously going to throw it open to the floor uh, for questions in the last third um, of the session to get your reflections um, on what is said and also potentially to dive deeper into some of the topics um, that are discussed. So we're fortunate today um, to be joined uh, in this session uh, by Tony Chappell, uh, Chief External Affairs Officer uh, at the Australian Energy Market Operator, uh, by Professor Frank Yotso um, here at ANU in the Crawford School of Public Policy, uh, Chloe Munro, who amongst many other hats she wears is Professorial Fellow at Monash University, uh, and Drew Clark, uh, who's the Chairman of the Australian Energy uh, Market Operator. Um, and without any further ado, um, please allow me to introduce uh, Tony Chappell to come and give his presentation. Uh, I've been in regular contact with um, Lachlan's former or current um, MD at Reposit, so it's good to see a Canberra startup doing so well um, and working on all of these issues. Um, <clears throat> so uh, this is really a great follow-up to the um, symposium that the um, ECI and the Energy Security Board and the um, IEA put on a few weeks ago in Sydney. Um, and so what I'd like to do is just talk through the... Um, the key themes of that um, three days and then drill down into a few of the other issues, 
all of which have been touched on already today, and I'm sure we'll get to some more of that in the discussion. But <clears throat> I think something that became apparent, and you know, as someone who's been in the energy industry, but on the um, corporate side until recently, was certainly not apparent to me, is that Australia in many ways is at the forefront of the transition that's sweeping electricity systems all around the world. Uh, and while our electricity system continues to have one of the highest fossil fuel shares um, when we look in the developed world, and I think it's about um, 84% last year, it is transforming at <clears throat> a more rapid rate um, through the adoption of renewables than almost any other market. Um, and as Frank has highlighted and Audrey mentioned, we're, we're installing on a per capita basis a higher level of renewables right now than um, any other market. And so um, the symposium was really put together by the market bodies, the Energy Security Board <clears throat> and our partners um, to try and look holistically and in an end-to-end -end way at these issues um, because a lot of debate and, and in a way our market architecture sort of enables this. It's often piecemeal or siloed and um, there was a view on the Energy Security Board that we need to really take an integrated look at these issues. Um, and so the issues that <clears throat> we thought needed to be looked at in that, that way are here on the screen. Um, firstly, there's obviously the technology change and supply. And, and in a market sense, that, um, as people have talked about today, is about zero-cost markets and designing energy markets when you've got a high penetration of um, variable resources that can deal with a very low um, marginal cost <coughs> and marginal price outcome. Um, and what this means, I guess, um, in the contract uh, market is that because they often, they're um, determined by the weather when they run, they often don't enter into the types of contracts and hedge products that the NEM historically has relied upon to manage risk and volatility. So <clears throat> that was one stream, one focus. Second one was about security of supply. Uh, and this is quite a nuanced concept because um, as markets shift to more um, power electronics connected equipment, and um, we're doing that at a rapid rate through rooftop P PV and also um, variable renewables. Um, the types of system services that we've historically taken um, for free with our energy, when it's come from large spinning turbines in coal and hydro and gas units, they don't necessarily arise, and that creates a whole lot of new needs for specific services in firming, in ramping, and there are also now synthetic ways of delivering many of these services through batteries and the like. So <clears throat> that was the second theme, and I'll talk a bit about that. Third theme, which um, Audrey mentioned today, is around resilience. Uh, resilience to climate change, but also the digital threat of um, cyber attack. And as we move to a digital energy system with millions um, of uh, generation sites on our rooftops as we have today and hundreds of millions of connected devices potentially shaping and responding um, on the demand and supply side. Obviously the vulnerability of that system um, <clears throat> becomes significant. Uh, but when you think about the um, just the weather impacts and climate impacts on our existing infrastructure, it's also very severe. I mean it was striking to me back in 2017, I remember this um, <clears throat> vividly when New South Wales um, had to resort to load shedding that a number of the thermal units um, that my own employer AGL was operating that day or within just a degree and a half of their maximum um, operational limit. And of course, as you get extreme heat, the efficiency of those units degrades. You also hit environmental limits in terms of the heat you're able to dump into watercourses and lakes. Um, there's the threat of bushfires, not only on transmission but also generation. 
um, at AEMO a few weeks ago as the 90 kilometre an hour winds were forecast in the Hunter Valley, we're actually talking to generators about what's their plan to power down and evacuate those major power stations in the Hunter Valley if they come under that kind of threat. Um, <clears throat> so these are all um, th threats that have existed for time, but uh, uh, for a long time, but I think the resonance of them as, as we, um, the climate warms is particularly salient. Um, the fourth theme was about financing the transition, and we thought this was more about the cost of capital. Turned out was going to be more. It was actually really about the rate of return um, required to deliver the investment we need. Um, but that's obviously critical given the capital we need to replace the aging coal fleet. Um, the fifth theme was about um, technology change and demand behind the meter. Um, and in, in, from an industry point of view, again. The industry doesn't really think about behind the meter. That's just behind the meter. That's not, you know, all the complexities in the control room of the, the um, Bayswaters and Loy Yanks. <clears throat> that actually, our biggest generator in, in each market is now um, behind the meter. And um, thinking about how to regulate that and also how to integrate that and enable it um, was a, a key theme that I'm going to touch on in, in a little bit of detail as well. Um, theme six was about gas and hydrogen markets and how they're going to develop <clears throat> and interlink. And theme seven related to that was about sector coupling and the implications for the, um, the hydrogen and, and gas and electrification of transport and so on that we're starting to think about in our system planning, but um, I suspect is going to happen when it does happen much faster um, than, <clears throat> than we realise. Um, and then the last two themes, uh, one was about the social equity side of the energy transition, both on the, the rise of distributed resources and what that means if you don't own your own home or if you are a low-income um, household, uh, but also the transition in terms of communities and the community impacts in these um, communities built around power, mining and power generation. And finally, we had an end-to-end -end consideration <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> of the issues. So how do we actually design a market end-to-end -end that integrates all of these traditional assets, utility-scale variable, renewables, and the rapidly evolving digital and DER side of the energy equation? Um, and the somewhat depressing conclusion there that's really stuck in my mind was this view that you can do two of the following three things. You can do things well, you can do things fast, or you can do them cost-effectively. So you pick two. Uh, and from AEMO's point of view, these are really urgent, so we don't want to give up on doing it quickly. Um, so then, you know, you, you, you face some tough uh, choices. So that, that was, I guess, quite a confronting conclusion. But so I'll just move, I'll just move through um, some of the key themes in a little more detail. I guess one last call out for me was Dieter Helm, who many of you will have read <clears throat> or even seen. He's at the Oxford Energy Institute. He wasn't able to be there in person, but he gave a digital address. Um, and he basically said, to, to tie all this together, you only need two things. You need a carbon price, ideally economy-wide, and you need some form of capacity market for reliability. And it was striking that only one of those two points was contentious, uh, and it was not the first one. But the the second point, I don't think should be contentious, um, and I'll talk a bit about that as well. So let me just get into some content. So this is a slide I took from Ken, and I just want to talk about his expansive idea of a sort of 700%, 500%, 2,000% renewable energy future. And if this is what we might um, be heading towards, um, how's it going to change our thinking about the overall market design? And the NEM's obviously only a part of that, if it is. Uh, and what would a power system like that actually look like? So 
I looked back, AEMO actually produced a report in 2013 at the request of the Federal Energy Department um, trying to map out what a 100% renewable national electricity market would look like. And I mean, it feels like an eternity ago, 2013, but six years ago, the thinking was it'd be between 80 and 130 gigawatts of capacity. There was all kinds of um, hope placed on hot rock and geothermal technology and biomass. <clears throat> Interestingly, not um, really an, an adequate understanding of the um, high quality onshore wind resources we have. I think we've already gone past the wind projections they included, but um, certainly in some of those cases. Um, and so that's obviously a very dated piece of work. Um, but when we think about um, this kind of future and what it means for the NEM, it's obviously well outside the bounds of those five scenarios Audrey talked to you about that we use when we plan the integrated system plan. Um, in fact, even if you think about the, um, the planning we're doing for policymakers to rely on, should they ask for it, <clears throat> we only have five scenarios. Um, they're based on central, um, central scenarios based on existing policy commitments. Then we look at a number of variables, how they might change in terms of technology cost, decarbonisation and so on. But um, we didn't have a scenario that dealt to the Paris commitment. And the industry gave us very strong feedback this year, um, including from the fossil fuel generators, that you must have a scenario for the future of the NEM that addresses that commitment. And so we, we have that, we call it the step change and that scenario gets you there. We don't have a scenario that looks at say what a one and a half degree future might require, which is essentially a zero emission system by 2030 or 2035. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's interesting uh, that if a government came to us and said, can you give us that plan? Um, we'd have to get cracking. So there's, I think there's a lot of thinking for me that fell out of the symposium and this whole idea of a, 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 a big renewable future um, that really we as the market operator and the other market bodies uh, and the, the um, policymakers in the bureaucracy at state and federal level really need to engage with. Because if you think about what that net zero system is, it's not just making the NEM renewable. You've electrified transport, heavy industry. You know, <clears throat> there's a bunch of extra load coming on. So conservatively, you're talking about triple the demand. Um, what would that look like? That's some you know, interesting long-term thinking that I think um, would behoove us to do. Um, and the other thing that uh, <clears throat> comes, uh, no, I'll leave that for the end. But, so, sorry, the, the next point, and <clears throat> I was gonna segue into this differently, but the importance of load um, was really brought home to me here. Now, this is a slide from Audrey's presentation. You can see the high rooftop PV pe um, penetration. This is the, one of the most interesting slides I saw at the symposium. And um, this is from one of our brilliant physicists in AEMO working at on how to integrate um, distributed energy. And so this is South Australia, and you can see um, that rooftop photovoltaic um, production will very soon um, meet the full load at particular points in time. We're actually having amazing conversations now about could we run South Australia in a stable and secure state with negative demand? And how does that work? And these are the kinds of challenges that power systems around the world haven't engaged with. It's not to say there aren't solutions, there are. Uh, but we need to be getting to those solutions ahead of the kind of um, penetration levels that we're seeing here. And if we don't, it raises real issues for keeping the system secure. Um, you can see that uh, the, you know, it, 
it presents governments with a very stark choice. Do they, do they want to say to their um, communities, you can't put any more um, solar on the roof, or those of you that have, we're going to need to start constraining you? Um, because if they don't, and I, I don't think we need to, and that's certainly not AEMO's view, um, we need to start looking at solutions um, and delivering them quickly. And so these are some of the technical challenges um, that we see with high rooftop PV systems. You, you have issues with voltage management. Um, you obviously have uh, new behaviour during disturbances and emergency frequency control systems. There's a real issue in how you restore the system if it blacks out, uh, the minimum load threshold, which you've just seen, and then visibility. That's a huge issue for AEMO, <clears throat> getting um, insight into how those units are producing and um, responding. Um, so many rooftop solar systems will disconnect when there's a major disturbance in the power system, and that can magnify the impact. Um, you can see a, 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 a transmission line um, dropping out and then hundreds of megawatts or more of rooftop systems cascading out. Uh, and so making sure we have the technology smarts to ride through that and to understand those impacts, to model them and be able to manage them um, has to be addressed and we need to be doing this right now because in some of our jurisdictions like WA and South Australia we're already um, at very high levels. Um, so in terms of performance standards that we need to think about, um, I've got some examples here about voltage disturbances and phase angle jump <clears throat> and grid support, so over-frequency response and under-frequency response. Uh, and then the risk to the system of cyber attack. We think generally when we restart the system that there's a level of demand that we can count on and we restart generation to meet that demand. If there's been a cyber attack that's taken demand off, um, how do we manage that? And how do we manage rooftop PV as our largest generator through all of that? Um, but there are a lot of options. And um, I hope out of the symposium there'll be some urgency with policymakers to work through these. Um, we can increase daytime command, uh, demand. Um, obviously, things like electric vehicles and electrification more broadly will, will boost load. But there's hot water and other load that we can move. Um, new interconnectors will help. Uh, Feed-in management, you know, voltage control and synchronous con condensers at the network level obviously make a big difference. And then utility storage. Um, <clears throat> and that's, I guess, the point I was going to earlier about the importance of load. I think, harkening back to the big renewable future, um, if you think about uh, load and even demand response, um, we've always seen the problem being um, avoiding load shedding. So we don't have to take load off at the peak. But now there's a whole um, opportunity for flexible load to come on and, and take energy at very low uh, prices. Um, in fact, we curtail wind and solar plants today, and we do it generally because there's not enough synchronous plant operating to keep the system stable. But in parts of the NEM, we're starting to see resistors being installed, for example, at Port Lincoln, because when that part of the system is islanded, um, then minimum load is below the technical minimum of the generators there. Now, for those of you who know electronics, and I'm a bit of a Luddite, but I know a resistor is just a big heat, big heater, really, that just sucks up the, um, sucks up the the load. Um, so we're essentially wasting all of that energy. And as the system builds out, um, particularly in um, some of these markets that are not well interconnected, there'll be a huge opportunity 
for industry, um, if it can be flexible in how it uses that power, to use very cost-effective power. And maybe that's part of um, not just the hydrogen story, but you know, future industry story as well. Um, we always think about demand response in terms of cutting off demand, but actually we need to think about demand and supply response. <coughs> um, yeah. I've talked about that. Oh, sorry, I haven't been keeping up. I've been flicking on my laptop and it hasn't been moving, so apologies. Um, last point was just about Black Start. And we build load um, incrementally and re rebuild generation, so incrementally, and connect to load. Um, for example, in New South Wales, if the system's black, we restart using Newcastle. It takes a couple of days, really, to restart all of Sydney. Um, <clears throat> but not being able to see how rooftop PV responds um, makes that a very tricky task. So it's just another issue that needs to be resolved. And it can be resolved, but we need the right rules, the right architecture, the right standards, and the right smarts in place. Um, so that was the second point uh, that really um, impacted me. And then the third point um, was just about market design. I mean, I, I grew up, as I said, in the sort of Jen Taylor world where the West Australian market was always um, seen quite pejoratively as too expensive, they've got a capacity market, it doesn't work, the NEM's much more efficient, much more cost-effective. Um, and, and you still find a lot of people in the market bodies and the industry who will tell you that today. I don't know that we can say West Australian electricity prices are higher than those in the NEM today. I don't think that's right. It's hard to do a like-for-like -like comparison, but <clears throat> I can tell you with absolute confidence there is no reliability issue in Western Australia because they do have um, a strategic reserve and a, a reserve margin and they have a capacity market. Um, and they're very well equipped to navigate a lot of these other issues um, we talked to as a result of some of their market architecture. So not to say that's the right answer, but I think um, redefining the way the market um, integrates all of the different combinations of services that are needed at different times and holistically co-optimises is, is the challenge for how the NEM should evolve. And it's one where it's easy to say, here are the problems. When we're not paying much for energy, um, we need to find ways to incentivise and make sure we have these other services available to keep it stable. Um, but how you actually co-optimise all of that and do that in a way that brings in the investment and ensures good competition, um, we need to think carefully through that. There'll be some things where it may make more sense just to contract. I mean, I imagine um, if you're the South Australian government, you probably think just the network contracting for some of these services to enable people to continue putting uh, solar on their roofs is, is perhaps um, the most efficient and equitable solution, but I don't know. And EMA doesn't have the answers to all of this, but we certainly see the problems and we see them growing in real time. Um, so you see a lot of other jurisdictions grappling with this. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> this is one of Audrey's slides, grappling with these issues um, at significantly lower penetrations of renewables than we see in some of our markets. Um, and, you know, what, what we can say definitively from AMO is we need more visibility ahead of time into what's going to be committed and how it's going to um, be optimised. We don't necessarily... Um, we can't necessarily say whether it's some type of capacity market or a day-ahead market or <clears throat> some, some other set of markets that's the optimum solution. Uh, but that's the conversation that, um, following the, the recent Coag Energy Council meeting, 
we're very keen to have um, and be part of and, and delighted that the Energy Council um, has directed that some of that work um, progress. Uh, and there are lessons. Obviously, none of these markets are an analogue for the NEM, um, but Audrey talked about some of the lessons from Ireland where they um, have had a very deliberately staged withdrawal of their thermal generation fleet and they had an initial objective of, I think, 40% wind and then it's gone to 45 and then 50 and as they've learned and um, convinced themselves that they can manage the system securely, they, they up that. <clears throat> so that sort of staging, I think, is something else worth thinking about. Um, but ultimately, the markets need to reflect the physical realities and um, that's something else that I had the luxury of ignoring um, when I was at a gen tailor, because it's not their job to keep the system secure and reliable. Um, but to do that, you can't fight the physics. And so finding uh, markets that deliver efficient outcomes and benefit consumers, but manage the power system to keep it secure and reliable based on the physical flows is also critical. Uh, so without further ado, I might um, hand back to Lachlan and, and we'll hear from the panel. Thanks very much, Tony. I hope you all got a sense of sort of the breadth and depth that was covered um, in, this, uh, in this recent forum. It really did sort of look across the entire uh, dimension um, of the electricity system in thinking about the kind of reforms um, that are going to be needed uh, over the years ahead. I should have mentioned before, aside from forums like this, uh, the outputs from, uh, from the Future Electricity Markets Summit are also actually going to be written up um, and that's going to result in nine papers in a special version um, of the Electricity Journal. Um, and that'll be coming out um, through uh, 2020 next year. And I think that'll be a really valuable resource, not just in the Australian context where we're thinking about, you know, what we're going to do next, um, but also in a global context, because obviously Australia is leading the world um, in facing many of these challenges. So to continue the theme um, of this session, um, we're now going to invite um, three speakers to provide some additional commentary um, and some particular insights that they took away uh, from the uh, recent summit. Uh, and to kick things off, uh, I'd like to welcome uh, Professor Frank Yotto. Yeah, the Future Electricity Market Summit. Um, just to start by saying it strikes me as a really very worthwhile initiative to actually get 200 or so of, of, of leading experts in this field in, in a room for a few days and, and speak outside of forums uh, where everyone feels like they need to um, uh, fiercely defend their own particular sectional interests, but to actually create a conversation, um, a genuine conversation about where this, this sector needs to go. And that conversation is needed because it really is a time of, of fundamental technological change. Uh, and the decades to come, we'll see... Uh, really tremendous needs for new investment, right? And, uh, and there needs to be uh, a framework uh, that guides that, uh, that investment uh, in, in an efficient and effective way. So it, it's hard to characterize, you know, any kind of consensus from, uh, from, from a big uh, powwow like that. Um, but I think one thing we can say is that there's a broadly shared view that market design in the electricity market needs to be revisited, revisited at least. Um, the future is largely renewable, partly decentralized, and there will be a much greater role for demand-side uh, integration. 
the present market uh, was designed and put in place at a time when the very large majority of current generating capacity was already put in place, and that was put in place uh, under a completely state-led model by the state governments. Okay, so the market was designed primarily for the efficient operation of a system uh, of fossil fuel plants, okay, and that's designed for, and it's not obviously designed to facilitate the exit uh, of these large plants. It's not obviously designed to facilitate um, entry uh, of zero marginal cost sources such as wind and solar. So Tony provided an excellent overview. Of course, I'll just zoom in on, 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 on three aspects uh, and share some thoughts. So I'm not claiming or attempting any kind of balanced synthesis of the many facts and views that were presented at that summit. So firstly, mm, we need market design that facilitates um, investment in generation as well as transmission and storage, um, and, and that is at a very large scale. Okay, so we've got major generation exit that will happen over coming decades, uh, and as Tony, you pointed out, uh, we will also very likely look at greatly expanded electricity demand as we electrify transport okay, and, and electrify other things. So how to ensure uh, revenue in a market that is an energy-only market that's designed um, to provide the same price to every generator at any point in time based on the marginal cost of generating electricity by the highest marginal cost plant in the market, which is typically a gas generator or coal generator. Right? So if you have that situation where all of your energy comes from uh, variable renewable energy from zero cost marginal zero marginal cost sources, then an energy-only market will give you a zero price. Okay, but a zero price is of course not reflective of the average price. It's just reflective of the of the additional cost of producing one megawatt hour of electricity now. Okay, so how do how do investors recoup their money in a market like that? Do we need some form of capacity market nationally? Um, will the answer be in, in a greater role for contract markets um, and or uh, for direct contracts between generators and retailers and, and, and large industrial users? What can we learn from other markets um, where the marginal cost of producing the product is zero? So, for example, mobile phone networks, okay? So uh, there's no auction for, you know, uh, capacity of making a phone call. Nevertheless, uh, I pay uh, quite a healthy amount to my uh, company every month. Um, no clear answers as to what is the best model. Um, what is clear that Australia is really at the forefront uh, of this transition uh, globally. Uh, and perhaps uh, the best market reform is one that actually allows further market reform uh, to take place down the track. Uh, investment conditions. Now, we've seen uh, a few years of a complete investment strike, uh, followed by a period that we're now in of, of really rapid investment in wind and solar. Okay, so that's a real um, a massive wave of new generation investment that's going in uh, right now. But, you know, to be cognizant that a lot of that investment has actually um, been, at least in part, um, paid for or, or de-risked by the public sector. For example, uh, through the renewable energy target, mostly earlier, um, some or much of what's going in now uh, is, uh, is, is partly underwritten through instruments such as contracts for difference. So uncertainty about carbon policy remains. Um, 
Uh, in the market is also substantial risk about future wholesale prices, of course, and increasingly about curtailment rates. So increasingly you can't be sure about the actual amount of electricity they're actually going to be able to sell because of, um, uh, of bottlenecks in the system. So the question is here, is there an ongoing role for governments to de-risk generation investment, to de-risk generation investment. And in that context, there's also a question as to how far does the planning and regulatory approach go and where does the market take over, okay? So uh, we've been operating under a system where the market takes a relatively large share of that spectrum, but it's not, you know, uh, a, a sort of a, uh, a self-evident truth that this must be so uh, in future. Second point, uh, greater predictability is needed of the exit of existing generation capacity, right? So we've got um, 16 or so large coal-fired generators left. They will exit over coming decades. Some may exit sooner than we think, um, and, uh, and that creates difficulties in the market. If the ha exit happens quickly, we've seen it with Hazelwood, um, price spikes, you know, uh, Audrey Siebelman this morning was talking about the fact that reserve uh, margin has, has dropped substantially. So really, in an ideal world, you'd like the replacement capacity to be online before the large centralized generators uh, switch off. So what's currently in place is a mandatory three-year uh, notice period. So you're meant to give three years notice before you turn your plant off. However, the problem is, of course, this machinery is old. Um, it's becoming increasingly uh, unpredictable. Um, and the natural tendency for any profit mark maximizing private operator uh, will be the same thing that, uh, that someone uh, might do that has a uh, an old car, and you just run it into the ground, and you leave it by the side of the highway the minute it dies, uh, in which case you will not comply with the three-year notice period. You will just send a letter of apology, um, which is not the ideal outcome for everyone else. And it's important to realize that the efficiency uh, benefit of running a plant right to the last minute is you know, countervailed by a social cost of unpredictability, okay? The system... Um, you know, the scramble that AEMO may be in in terms of uh, retaining supply in such a situation, and also the local communities, right, that do not have adequate time to prepare, uh, state governments that do not have adequate time to put in place um, structural adjustment measures. Which brings me to the third point, uh, which is social equity. So at the summit, there was a really very good discussion, I thought, about broader issues um, of energy system transformation and how that relates to people in the community, okay? And so there are uh, quite clear arguments in favor of planned regional structural adjustment in coal-fired power plant areas uh, and a greater emphasis also on energy affordability for low-income earners. So on a planned transition, um, that's the kind of thing that we see in Hazelwood, right? Latrobe Valley Authority, hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayer money spent, but without much preparation, right? So do we need um, a more structured and forward-looking approach on that? Uh, if so, um, uh, is, is there a role for industry, perhaps, uh, to help pay for the transition um, that, uh, or, or help pay for measures, for example, to put in place infrastructure that supports future alternative uh, businesses? On consumers, you know, I mean, electricity prices, of course, are a top-shelf topic in a political debate for a long time now. But when you think about vulnerability, this really affects low-income earners the most. 
Um, and that may on occasions be a different demographic from where uh, our politicians are aiming for in the, um, in the, in the quest for, for winning marginal seats. Um, which brings us in this, I'll close on this, um, the national electricity objective. So the NEO at this point reads um, uh, that uh, you know, markets should be organized to promote efficient investment in and efficient operation and use of electricity, electricity services for the long-term interest of consumers of electricity with respect to price, quality, safety, reliability, and security of supply of electricity. Right? So one question is whether perhaps the national electricity objective ought to be amended uh, to include the terms social equity um, as well as sustainability. Um, so many questions there, and it just seems to me that at this point we're still better at generating questions than answers. Um, but that's uh, perhaps not uh, uh, not such a bad thing. Thanks. Thanks very much, Frank. Um, I'd now invite Chloe Munro to come up and continue um, her reflections and observations um, on the recent summit. Uh, well, uh, thank you, Lachlan, and thank you for the invitation to participate in this discussion. Um, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I, I was really pleased to attend the summit and I came away from it, as I often do, fizzing with ideas and listening to the presentations this morning and indeed the reflections we've just had. I've got even more uh, ideas fizzing around my brain. And so the challenge is how you tie these together in a kind of coherent narrative. And that, in a sense, is a really good metaphor for the challenge we're facing, I think, uh, with energy market design. So I'm just going to sling a few concepts which are a little bit different and perhaps a different kind of takeaway from the ones that you've heard from Frank and doubtless you're going to hear from Drew. So you might think of me as here to be the entertainment value. Um, so the, the first thing, I'm mean, listening to, to, to Ian this morning and looking at the uh, scenarios from the International Energy Agency, I think the, the, the um, outlook makes one thing that's absolutely abundantly clear, and that is that um, the only tenable scenario that we can follow is a sustainable development scenario, and the other ones simply don't cut it. So that means that the process of transformation that we're embarked on needs to be faster, it needs to be higher in ambition, and it needs to be much stronger, by which I mean more resilient to all the kind of forces that, that, that get in the way. Um, Tony talked about the need for speed just in terms of what I think of as a process of remediation that we're currently going through in the NEM, which is really about tackling the effects of a very uneven development pathway that we've been on the last decade. So we, can, we could continue to diagnose that forever, but just let's accept that there's a lot of work to be done. So this um, faster, higher, stronger thing, which is incidentally the Olympics slogan, um, translated into English, I think is a really important thing to hold in the back of our minds. And the other um, aspect about the Olympic Games, which aren't a great metaphor in some ways, but the Olympic values of solidarity and fair play. So you advance through competition, but you have the values of solidarity and fair play, I think, are very important. And solidarity, in a sense, is the thing that sits behind the importance of um, meeting our uh, Paris uh, commitments. And that doesn't mean our interim commitments, but the long-term uh, long target. So um, let's just take that as a given, and thank you for the applause there. Um, but, you know, that's just a given, so we just need to move, move on beyond that. Um, and as Audrey, Audrey said in the morning, I mean, we, we, 
really did see, and we saw this in the summit, I think, really a high degree of agreement about the challenges that we're facing now. Um, a high degree of agreement about what the transformation is looking like and where we might land uh, in, in the future in terms of the impact of the four Ds, digitalization, decentralization, decarbonization, and uh, democratization, which really means um, decentralized ownership in lots of ways. Um, but, you know, what, what we really need is this bridge in the middle, and I think it was, it's still much less clear what that transition... Audrey says it's all about the transition pathway, and I think it's much less clear, and it was still out of the summit, much less clear what that bridge should be. So I'm just going to throw a couple of ideas of my own into where we might look for that. Um, so the first thing is certainly first things first, and um, prioritisation is very important. Um, Audrey presented a list of priorities from AMO's perspective, which includes um, an actionable integrated system plan, and she acknowledged that that was one of the, I think, central recommendations from the Finkel Review, and it's very pleasing to see the progress on that, so that's a tick. Uh, work on the reliability standard and mechanisms, I think that's relatively easy to get our arms around, so I'd say there's a tick on that. Um, integrating distributed resources and energy efficiency, much more complicated. We're able to describe a vision around that, the orchestration and how digitalization can help that. But um, I think we're a long way from actually having um, a view about how all of those bits can really, and I th think we heard the, the, the language um, from um, Tony again, which was about um, holistic optimization, uh, which really makes my toes curl in terms of uh, what, um, what a plethora of issues that covers. Um, so we, we have an idea about it, but I think we're a very long way uh, from casting light on it. And I think one of my biggest disappointments from the summit was I didn't really hear a clear articulation of the next steps beyond the kind of trials that we're seeing about the, around virtual power plants and so forth. And I didn't get much enlightenment from the rest of the world on that either. So big, big question mark around that. Markets to reward flexibility and firming. Again, I think there's, there's, we can see some pathways on that, but I think there's some big questions going forward about market design, the further evolution beyond what I see as this remediation. Frank's talked about managed ex exits, and certainly information transparency, huge thing, a long way to go. And I just think that this is one area where the um, power sector and utilities are lagging way way behind some of the other sectors I work in, which have equally large amounts of data. I mean, you have no idea the number of data points that are sent in a single phone call. I don't mean the, the call, I mean the metadata. I mean, we're talking about billions and billions of bits of data. So um, other industries are grappling with this. Um, the consumer goods industry is doing extraordinary things with um, data and deep and rich understanding, and you're getting mass customization and all those trends as a result. Um, so I think we can learn a lot from other industries still. Um, but there's a lot of opportunities there as well, and the digital twin kind of concept's a very good one. So, getting back to this how far and how fast, I think my, one of my fundamental messages is that at some point we're going to have to kill our darlings. Um, we've had a bit of conversation about uh, whether we need or can any, ever aspire to a global price of, on carbon. It's probably really not. It's a bit beside the point, I think, in terms of electricity at this point, but it might be useful elsewhere in the economy. But that might be one. Um, I think the NEO has, and again, Frank talks about that, 
I see it as being a very supply-side formulation because even though at the end it's talking about long-term interest of consumers, at the beginning it's talking about investment in and operation of, and it rather fetishizes efficiency in a way that I don't think is entirely uh, helpful. Uh, one of the speakers at the summit referred to Michael Grubb's book, Planetary Economics, and I think that is helpful because it's... Uh, Michael Grubb, I don't know... If, Many of you have read this book, it's, but it, he talks about these three domains. And really what he's saying is that market economics, the kind that really dominates the economic thinking around our market, uh, is useful within that kind of middle domain. But we should also pay much more attention to the domain of uh, the, the um, demand side, the consumer. And that is um, behavioral economics is, is, is a much more useful tool there. And at the other end, when you're having these major transitions and everything is networked and connect, connected, you really have to think more about uh, the tools that are offered by development economics. Interestingly, uh, the Nobel Prize for economics was won in that field this year. And institutional economics. Um, I've got a lot to say about institutions, but not in these three, the, the, the three minutes that I've got left. So I think we've got a tussle between pragmatism, which is starting now and, and the next steps, and what we do for the long term. Um, so, yes, mobilise some of these newer ways of thinking, other economic models. Um, and also, don't think that the constraints of pragmatism are purely political. And certainly don't think that, the, that politics are being driven by consumer interests in the way it's often characterised. I think that's a real misrepresentation. And actually, I think the main political constraint, and I don't mean the partisan things that we heard about from um, Pat Conroy this morning, but are the very large sunk investments in the status quo. The sunk investments of the incumbent businesses, the sunk investments of the infrastructure, and also the sunk investments of our institutions in their systems and processes and ways of thinking. And quite honestly, if we're going to get the pace of reform and change that we need, I do think we have to invest in our institutions and give them the freedom and the mandate to be more exploratory because they're, you know, they're really uh, moving on a very tight rein at the moment. And their um, incentives are quite asymmetric. There's much more um, driver to avoid downside risk than, to, uh, than the willingness to experiment and look for the upside risk. So that needs to be dealt with. But one thing that I'd like to just really close with is one of the ways I think through this is to have a much more real, get real about the consumer, a laser-like focus on the consumer. And don't just keep on saying, well, the equivalent of that takes you back to the supply side. Um, and I think there's a couple of sim simple rules. And the first one is the customer is always right. And it's just amazing. Even at this, 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 you know, this summit, I heard this all the time, and I'll take issue with Tony on one thing. So he took a, one of his takeouts from these, the um, session on end-to-end -end market design was that you can only have two of the three things. You can be, you know, you can be uh, you know, fast, or you can be, be cheap, or you, or you can be good. And similarly, you know, I remember a CIO that I was working with on a multi-billion dollar IT transformation saying, well, you know, we can deliver two budget on time or two quality, but only two of the three. And I just said, tell that to the board. Tell that to the board. I mean, customers are not that stupid. They don't demand impossible combinations of these things. And much more attention, I think, really needs to be paid on what they really want and what they really need. And there's going to be a lot of pulling through, as we're seeing from the customer. 
But I think another thing that struck me is that customers are very expert at making bundled decisions. And one of the really interesting presentations, I thought, was from Simon Wilkie talking about combinatorial auctions. I've got no idea whether they'd be useful, but this idea that you go for a bundle of benefits through an auction process rather than sort of having separate segregated markets, I thought was one that's worth pursuing. Um, so just, just, I think, if we focus on the customer, if we don't sort of patronise the customer... And just one final thing I want to say about this, and I think this is a real sleeper issue in this whole distributed resources. We talked about social equity. But the other aspect of fairness is this, that when we're going to have all this algorithmic decision-making, deploying investments that have been made by the customer, who are not also consumers, their owners, how do the benefits of that get distributed between them, the aggregator, and the system of the whole. So the governance question around that is, I think, it's, it's a really important one to solve. And so we need to marshal other disciplines alongside the economics to solve this. We didn't have a much of a discussion about that at the summit, but I'm sure it's something that will get a lot of attention shortly. Thank you. Thanks very much, Chloe. And lots of interesting questions there, I think, which we can hopefully unpack uh, in the discussion, um, which will be coming up. Um, to close out uh, the insights and reflections um, on the summit, um, I'd now invite uh, Drew Clark uh, to come and address us. Thanks very much, uh, Lachlan, and thank you to Ken for the invitation to speak in this session. Uh, I'm going to take a slightly different uh, tack to the three speakers before me and try and put this Future Energy Markets Conference that you've been hearing about into a broader policy perspective. Um, but I'm also going to draw on two other recent uh, major gatherings addressing these issues over the last few months. You've, you've heard a lot about the recent uh, the summit sponsored by the IEA, ESB and ANU. Uh, I also spent two days at the Australian Financial Review's Energy Summit, which is very much a media-driven and high, you know, high communica communication event. And I also attended the COAG Energy Council meeting in Perth uh, a few weeks back. And there are three interesting data points on the way in which the policy debate uh, or the st current status of the policy debate in Australia on the energy transition that we're currently experiencing. So I've got three uh, propositions or observations that I, I draw from, from those conferences and other experience. Um, first, about around the policy process, uh, and I want to talk a little bit about how that seems to have changed quite significantly, particularly over the last year. Second, around the scope of policy. When we talk about energy policy, what do we really mean? What are the boundaries of that? And third, around an area that I think is a material gap in the policy debate and which we are capable of filling uh, quite efficiently. So first, uh, the policy process. So my observation is that the policy discussion, the policy process has changed significantly um, particularly over the last year. For a long time, most of this century, um, the policy making in the energy area was more uh, an incremental consensus building. I'm talking about ne the NEM, the National Electricity Market in particular. could be characterised as incremental consensus under a cooperative federalism 
version of microeconomic reform, supported by three independent market bodies. And that reflected the paradigm in which the current model of the NEM was created, and for much of this uh, century, for this period, it worked very well. But, as everyone recognises, it's now quite clear that the disruption that's occurring in the electricity systems and markets is far deeper and faster than the policy and rules process is able to cope with. We're in catch-up mode. Uh, some examples of major gaps in the NEM architecture. Uh, it does not integrate energy and climate policy, even though climate policy is one of the major forces that impact on the NEM. There are minimal to no markets for flexibility, uh, firming, dispatchability, security. These are small and immature markets that are now critical to delivering the, uh, the NEM objectives. Transmission planning was all designed to try and avoid gold plating. Uh, it's now a quite different problem in the transmission place. So the problem to be solved has moved on, but there are no mechanisms to deal with it. Renewable energy zones is a good example of that. And we had no mechanism to manage the exit of large generators. Indeed, the paradigm when the NEM was designed was an expectation of future growth of energy demand coupled with economic growth. Uh, that paradigm's gone. There's many good sides about that. But there was no process that was designed and baked in for managing the exits of large generators. Now, I make all of those observations not as a criticism of the framework, um, but simply to say we're in a paradigm shift. We're in a disruption and our markets, our policy processes and institutions are struggling to catch up. So we're seeing some new things happening in the policy and rules world that we've not experienced for, uh, before in, in the current incarnation of the NEM. We're seeing AEMO issuing directions, constraints, uh, conditions on new plant at a, a depth and rate that has never occurred before in the NEM. So the operator is intervening far more actively than, than used to be the case. We're seeing ministers through the COAG Energy Council making big policy calls and directing the Energy Security Board as to what they want them done and when they want it by in order to make a decision. And the Perth meeting was quite striking in the clarity of direction that was given to the market bodies and policymakers in departments to bring back solutions for ministers to sign off on. We're seeing states derogating away from the national electricity law and rules in a way that we've not experienced before. Uh, and we're seeing the Commonwealth starting to use, or at least talk about, using uh, its financial power to make bilateral deals with the states around particular classes of investment or intervention. None of these things used to happen. We operated the NEM for the best part of 15 years without any of those mechanisms at all, and they're now quite prominent in the policy debate. Two of the biggest changes arise directly from Alan Finkel's review, uh, and they are the integrated system plan, which you heard Audrey talk about earlier today, uh, and it now in its second incarnation moving to being a real plan that drives investment. 
And the second is the Energy Security Board's work on the 2025 market design, which is what the summit that we've been talking about was all about. These are very big changes to the policy framework of the electricity market. And by the way, uh, the requirements, the policy changes on operationalising the integrated system plan are due to be uh, presented to and hopefully approved by ministers next year. And 2025 might seem a long way away when you're sitting here at the end of 2019, but 25 is not the date by which we make the decisions on the future energy market design. It's when we implement the future energy market design. And to implement means we have to make decisions well before that date because there will be significant transition issues to be managed. I also observe, uh, perhaps as much as anything as a result of, of the political cycles, that ministers are very much focusing on reliability and security and on pricing. Uh, the climate imperative is largely within the electricity sector being addressed by the spectacular uh, cost efficiency improvements in renewable energy uh, and by consumer and investment preferences. And the current policy focus right now in this next in this current period is around security, reliability on the one hand and price on the other. They are critical for a whole lot of economic and social reasons, but I think they're also critical to maintain community social confidence in the energy transition that we're doing, because if we lose confidence in this process, uh, it could be a major setback. So these are big changes to the policy process, uh, very material. Uh, hopefully they're just in time and not too late, but they're certainly not before time. Second observation I'd make is around the scope of policy and what we, what for many years energy policy was essentially an economic and technical domain. Uh, and right now I think it's become very clear that the technical and economic responses to all of the issues that you've heard about today uh, can and will be solved. I, I'm very confident of that. They can and will be solved. That's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Uh, the policy frontier now is far more in the domains of political economy and social science. And yes, the technical and economic issues are hard and challenging, but a lot of good people are working on them around the world and here, and they will be solved. But within our system in Australia, we have a particular political economy and social uh, dimension that we must address ourselves. While ever we lack a social consensus on where we're going with this energy transition, it's going to be that much harder. It will have differential social and regional impacts and they will need to be managed very carefully. So the scope of energy policy is far wider, I think, than it has been in recent, part, in, in recent decades. Uh, it's wider and deeper. And certainly it's wider and deeper than in previous energy transitions in this country. My third proposition is that there is a gap in this framework. Uh, and that gap uh, is around research. Uh, I put what I think is a non-contentious proposition, particularly at a university, uh, that more and better coordinated research on the Australian energy transition 
would be a darn good thing. Now, let me explain, and in the context of my previous points, it should be obvious where I'm going, that I'm not saying we need to invest money in yet or more money in um, technical aspects of this or even the policy side. I think it is a far uh, broader scope. Social, economic, engineering and science domains are all there. The focus, how do we optimise the Australian energy transition with respect to price, emissions and reliability and security, the energy trilemma? Does this need a national plan, an agenda, a framework, however you might characterise it? What's the role of users and researchers in shaping that plan? How is it funded? How do you ensure translation to impact? Uh, what are the governance models that would apply to it? And what sort of infrastructure would be needed to support it? Audrey mentioned in the, her address the work that AMO is doing on developing a simulator or a digital twin of the energy system. I think that's fundamental infrastructure for research as well as for planning and operating the system. To that end, the, Australian, uh, the Council of Learned Academies uh, is, has started discussion of a process that might lead to the development of such an Australian energy transition research plan. Because at the end of the day, I'd argue that research is, is a no regrets policy response and heaven help us, it might even lead to an outbreak of evidence-based policy. <laughs> so my three propositions, uh, Drawing on the summit and other events, the policy discussion and process is undertaking a profound shift. Technical and economic responses are necessary but not sufficient. And the research community uh, can, I think, be leveraged far more effectively through an energy transition research plan. Thanks, Lachlan. Thanks very much, Drew. Um, I'd now invite the panellists to come up and join us um, for a discussion in the remaining time. Please. Um, so uh, if you could put your hands up, we'll, um, we'll go to audience questions um, soon and there's a couple of, um, a couple of roving mics um, that'll be coming around. Um, if you could just introduce yourself um, before, you, um, before you ask your question, that'd be greatly appreciated. Um, as a chair, I'm gonna take the prerogative of kind of kicking things off. Um, I think for me, one of the key things that we really saw at the summit was a discussion um, around the fact that there are, you know, techno technical, economic, uh, and social issues. Um, I think that, you know, again, got touched on um, today. I'm gonna focus on the social, um, the social side of it, because I think we do we do spend a lot of time talking about the, the technical and the economic. So one of the themes that really came through on that front was this concept of putting people right at the centre of what we do, and the Federal um, Energy Minister suggested exactly the same thing when he, um, when he spoke to us. I wonder if the panel would like to comment on, um, on some key ways that we can actually get people at the centre um, of the transition that we're under with that's underway. Um, look, I, I, as I said, I mean, I think this is the central thing, but it's to put people at the centre and really mean it. And I'm quite sceptical of a lot of statements. And when I've worked in business very often, you know, the customer is at the centre of everything 
we do. And then you look at their incentive frameworks and everything, so yeah, right. But there is an enormous opportunity here, and it's really important we focus on it. Because first of all, customers generate people in their decisions. If you think about it, they're the decision makers who decide how energy is consumed and what investments they're going to make uh, that contribute to um, both production and consumption. So their decisions are just centrally important. So understanding the data of what they're actually doing, never mind thinking about how um, that might be marshaled in the future, there's just a huge opportunity there. So I think all the developments in the research, the digital twin and all of that are really, really important. And just understanding that, that customers are just not hom homogeneous in any sense. And when you think about what, one of the um, part, parts of the discussion, which was about end-to-end -end market design, started out by saying, well, we've actually got no idea where the ends of this market is because the electricity market is so influenced by all these other markets and then we, we can see the value of sector coupling. And it's, it's the, that decision-maker who is the person who exercises sec sector coupling and who, who will actually de determine the fate. So I think it, you know, really focusing on that is, is, is a very powerful and trying to model the system, uh, system from the customer out uh, rather than from the infrastructure out, could really make a big difference. And I, I think we've got a bet better tools than we ever have, but I don't see them as being particularly well deployed right now in the utilities sector. I'll, uh, I'll come at it. I mean, just uh, agree with Chloe's remarks, but, but let me add another dimension. Give a graph with uh, two dimensions. On one axis, you've got customers by the size of their energy consumption and we might move at one end and their social and economic circumstances and we move from a low-income household for which energy is a significant part of, of their uh, share of wallet as the economists say and an aluminium smelter at the other and we've got for, for which the price of energy is actually ex existential as to whether or not the company exists in this country. And we've got a lot, it's a big continuum along that axis. And along another axis, you've got extent to which you want to engage with the energy market as opposed to extent to which you just want it to work for you. Uh, and your definition of working for you probably starts with price and reliability security. Uh, and there's, that's a very wide spectrum. So I'm... I, I think this role of the customer has to embrace that low-income renting household uh, through to the aluminium smelter, and it has to embrace the customers that, that will choose to actively engage with the system. We, AEMO, want the smelter to be an active participant in, in emergency reserves. Uh, Many, many householders just want the system to work for them. And that includes the, the panels on their roof, potentially, and the, and the battery in the garage. But they don't want to be checking their app and making decisions. And so it's a very rich field, and the digitising of the system enables all of those dimensions to be addressed. And I think that's going to be a very exciting part of the transition. Just to add a quick ride, I mean, I, obviously I agree. I mean, I think the spectrum is really important. But I, we use this word engage very oddly. Every time somebody makes a decision, they are engaged with the system. They're not just necessarily engaged with what the system operator or some industry player or us as the wise people in the room want them to do. So I, I, 
really what I'm saying is that they are highly engaged. They make decisions every day. Those decisions are influenced by all sorts of other things outside of their electricity, uh, the electricity market sort of imperatives. And if we can pay attention to what they actually do, never mind whether they're engaged and actively deciding about it, then, then we would get a lot more information that would help manage the system better. That, that's all I'm saying. Um, just to, to add to that very briefly, I think <clears throat> governments also have a role to play here with the um, subsidies or incentives they create. Because if you think about rooftop solar, um, the feed-in tariffs have been you know, wildly successful, but many of us go out to work or to school and so on and we use uh, energy at night time when we come home and in the morning when we wake up. There's a segment of the community that Drew touched on, <clears throat> which is people living in social or public housing on disability pensions and the like, who are home during the day and the ideal customer to um, maximise self-consumption. There's no program in many states, some states do have them, but that targets that um, cohort and often there's a split incentive with landlord and tenant. Sometimes the landlord is the state, so that should make it easier. But um, I think focusing on different customer segments is also critical. So energy efficiency policy should not be dead, even even if we have plentiful renewable supply. Um, you know, in part in order to address that that problem of of uh, low income households. And you know, I mean, the digital revolution and you know the the decentralized technology, solar panels, and an electric car that can also provide vehicle um, electricity to the grid and profit from that might be a very pro uh, profitable financial proposition for many of us, right? That have the means for that. And, and, and the house and the driveway and all the rest of it, um, but that might actually steepen that uh, that differential. Um, and you know, I mean, we're working in a field where, as researchers, data availability is poor. So the ABS did a, a very uh, useful survey of uh, of energy consumption in relation to household characteristics, including income and how many people are there and how, and how much space do you live. Mm, and that dates 2013. We haven't got anything more recent than that. And that's actually one of the things that, um, that I think is a very strong case for some public investment in. I'd now throw it over to you. Are there questions um, in the audience? You have one here? Uh, hi. Uh, thank you very much for that. Um, very interesting. Um, my name is Melanie Graddon. I'm from the Clean Energy Regulator, also a old Plato HCD human-centred design practitioner, so very interesting to hear that coming from the panel. Um, I guess I'm interested in seeing what you guys um, see as the role of the uh, innovation community and the entrepreneurs that are at the front end of often coming up with these um, disruptive business models that might be really small scale but end up becoming something much bigger. And I'm not sure if there's a, a strong connect between government um, and um, all the policies and what's evolving out there on the ground. Uh, I'm curious what you see and how we can connect into that. Thanks. I mean, I, I can just briefly touch on that. I think this idea of regulatory sandboxing and um, is really important there and having an adaptive framework that enables um, incremental change. It isn't um, necessarily going to change the world but lets new um, ways of delivering ancillary services and other elements in the energy system um, occur perhaps in a small and constrained way at first but to prove the concept. AEMO is trying to do this with our virtual power plant trial where 
um, participants can register and there are a couple now. The Housing Trust in SA is one and Tesla is another and, and there'll be more. Um, but delivering those new services in uh, ways that are quite groundbreaking um, in, but in, in a limited scale <coughs> that allows us to understand and stress test the impacts on the system. So we're probably not as good at it, at it as we should be, but I think we're getting better at it. Yeah, I, I think there's actually been a real shift uh, very recently. It's taken much longer than I had uh, hoped and anticipated a decade ago when I started really focusing on this, uh, over a decade ago. But, um, you know, we've got Luckin sitting there, great entrepreneur. Um, we are seeing lots of, I think, really interesting uh, experiments and business models. So the real question to me is how do they scale up and connect together? And at some point, this is where I think we're going to get into kill your darlings territory. So my sense is the post-2020 five market design stuff will all be about kind of remediate, mostly about remediation and a few, few, few new ideas. But then we're really going to have to get into this adaptive cycle. And so these questions about, well, you know, what is the business model for distribution and how, how, have our ideas around ring fencing and all of that just really become totally redundant? So I think that's where we're going to at some point confront, well, um, lots of great activity going on, sandboxing is great, but true adaptive regulation is not the same as incrementalism, actually, because it's having a fairly sort of grand plan, and you take a step, you see what works, and then you, and then you, and, and you have, as Alan was talking about in the hydrogen strategy, you have to have some sort of indicators of progress and, and indicated measures of success, even though, it, though you might have not have targets, and so you're accountable against that, and then you start to maybe make some quite big shifts that we're not thinking about now, and that to me is going to be an enterprise that's going to go way beyond 2025. I might just also make the comment that I think one thing Australia has done very well actually has been to invest in a lot of projects and trials, and I mean, I think we probably underappreciate the role that ARENA has already played and will play actually in driving the transition so quite literally billions of dollars have been poured into new ideas and they will come to fruition over the years ahead it kind of highlights you know really where governments do play a really significant role i think in driving um, driving transition but it also highlights the challenge that we may face when we actually lose funding like arena um, in our ecosystem uh, there was a question um, up the back in the middle yeah uh, john story university of new south wales uh, I think we'd all agree that the, the decentralization and uh, democratization of the grid is a good thing. Um, but as we've seen recently, particularly democracies can go a bit feral. And um, I wonder, uh, as um, more generating power and hence bargaining power is put in the hands of individuals, uh, and as those individuals become less dependent on the grid because they have the ability to island, either with their home battery or with their car, um, how robust the system is uh, against um, collective bargaining, uh, potentially uh, civil disobedience in the form of um, generation strikes by consumers. That's a great question. It's not. I have to confess, it's not one that's occurred to me previously. Um, uh, 
I don't know that the dynamic is quite anal analogous to a democracy. It's democratizing because it is empowering. Um, but uh, I think people having more options, more ability to um, take control of their own energy um, use and contribution, um, be that people who want to be part of a collective solution or community or people who want to be more libertarian and go off the grid. <coughs> uh, I think fundamentally the value to each of us will always be greater by being part of an interconnected system, just in financial terms. Um, so I guess I'd, I don't worry a lot about those kind of political forces, um, but certainly I'll give it some thought now. Well, no, but I think we're actually in that situation now, and I think we saw it in ordinary slide. Where she, be, you know, slides where she basically said, "Well, look, behind all this behind the meter stuff, there's all these people with um, with distributed resources, not just solar and batteries, but all the other things that, that they can decide to switch on and off. We don't know what the hell they're doing, and we quite like to know and try and get some control over that. So I think we're already in that situation. And and Tony talked about, you know, when he was at AGL, and you know, they had all as a Gen Taylor, and they they had these concerns, and they had their fiduciary duty to their shareholders. But it was Amo's job to keep the system stable, so the kind of common good was was really not part of it. So I think we're already in that world now. Whether you get to a point where there's some kind of mass movement that orchestrates it, I mean, that seems to me probably quite self-defeating for the individuals involved. So I kind of wouldn't worry about that. But I do think the principle that we already have. The decision makers that are attached to this connected, highly connected system do what they want, and that is not necessarily consistent with the holistic greater good. Is exactly the challenge that um, Drew, as, uh, as as the chair of IEMO, is facing right here and right now. Mm. Once we all drive electric cars, there's actually a fair bit of power over the system concentrated there. If you could orchestrate, like if you bring, if you want to bring the, the grid down, all you'd need is everyone charging, <laughs> turning the charger on at the same time. You might want to worry about that one. It's it's look, it's a it's a really challenging question, and and. Uh, if I take it very literally and say, well, you've just added yet another line to the AEMO risk register, which <laughs> I'll refer to the chair of the Audit and Risk Committee. Um, but, I, but I think, you know, Frank's observation and, and the other observations are really interesting. So, hey, we've got over 2 million generators in Australia today uh, in our system, which is 2 million more rounding up than we had not that long ago, and it's growing. And we are still catching up. We're struggling to catch up with the fact that we have those 2,000 out there and that we, the operator, don't have visibility, let alone the capacity to orchestrate in a way in which consumers are either actively happy to participate in or are willing to sign a contract with their retailer or distributor that just allows that it just happens and they don't much care. So we're in catch-up mode on that phenomena, and, and, and that's not peaked at all. Uh, we certainly know from Perth and, and Adelaide experience that if the rest of Australia catches up with those two jurisdictions, it'll go further. The household battery scenario is new and may be, uh, uh, have as big a consumer impact, household impact choice as the PV on the roof, and certainly a lot of governments are doing a lot to support that. Then the next wave will be electric vehicles. 
you know, mobile batteries. And so we certainly can't afford to wake up one day and find we've got two million household batteries plus and two million batteries on wheels plus and still scratching our head as to how to see it, orchestrate it, manage it, uh, have a, a consumer engagement model that works for consumers and doesn't drive them to go on strike. So these are, these are good problems to have, of course. These are fantastic problems to have. And when Alan, you know, if, if Alan's highest hope for hydrogen is realised, then that brings a whole new energy carrier into the system with a whole lot of new dynamics that can be exploited by these capacities. So I, I, I guess I see more upside potential than downside risk in, in the scenario you paint, but it's, it's a very challenging proposition nonetheless. Further questions or additions to Drew's risk register? Uh, there's one in the middle here. Oh, sorry, one at the back. Uh, g'day, it's um, Dylan McConnell. Well, I'm a, I've got the microphone, so I'll just jump in. Um, We've it's okay. Dylan, do you want to... Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, uh, Dylan McConnell from the University of Melbourne. Um, thanks for a very, very fascinating uh, discussion so far. Um, I guess I, I have a question that a few of you have touched on around essentially governance. Um, uh, sort of, I guess, from yeah, a historical perspective, um, AMO was set up as the market operator um, and is a company. It's not a regulator. It's not a statutory authority. It's a company, a corporation, and uh, uh, the operator, and it's increasingly, or certainly it's very overtly, uh, moved into a role of being a system planner. Um, and some of the things that we've heard um, um, Audrey talk about this morning, some of the activities, uh, I think even, you know, sort of touched on local planning issues, um, and, and Drew mentioned moving from moving away from that strict ec economic technical sort of role to a more, that sort of more political economy, social science, components. Um, that kind of strikes me as essentially highly inappropriate for a company that is not actually, um, you know, I'm not, that's not a, an attack on AMO itself, but as the governance structure itself. Um, for a company to be a system planner and a system operator uh, and sort of operating sort of in this way, and I, I guess I'm, I'm I'm interested to hear what people think about... It's also worth pointing out in other jurisdictions, certainly over in the United States and Europe, um, system operation is also very strictly separated from system planning. Um, so I'd be interested to hear the, the panel's various perspectives, noting that two of you are from AMO, um, on that, how that might evolve over time and how you, might, how you see the governance structure um, uh, you know, being appropriate in this this transition. That's a, uh, thank you for that question. That's a really good one. And, and you're touching on topics that I spend a lot of time thinking about and that uh, the AMO board and management think about. So uh, for those not familiar, uh, the Australian Energy Market Operator is a not-for-profit corporations law company, 60% owned by the eight Australian governments, that is the Northern Territory is the only government that isn't one of our owners, 60% owned by governments, 40% owned by market participants. We have about 50 or 60 market participants on the 40% side and our costs are recovered from uh, through retailers ultimately paid for by consumers. That's, and our role is uh, established in the national electricity law and the national gas law. That, 
prescribes our functions. If anyone knows of another entity with those parameters, I'd really like to meet the chair. There you go. It's, it's, pretty re it's a pretty strange sort of um, governance structure. Uh, it's, when, when I look at uh, the, the language around the world is usually either an ISO or a uh, TSO, an independent system operator, or a transmission system operator. In many jurisdictions, the transmission network and the system operation are integrated into the one body. Uh, where an independent system operator is the jargon. As far as I can see, we're almost unique in having both electricity and gas. Most ISOs only operate in the electricity sector. Having gas within our remit, I think, is a great strength opportunity for finding the efficiencies and exploiting the, the opportunities in the Australian circumstance. So I think the fundamentals of that governance model of having an independent system operator who's primarily driven by the national energy objective, however ministers choose to frame it, because it is their job to frame it and then our job to execute against it. I think the fundamentals of that are fine. So now let me clarify my remarks about political economy and social science. That's not AEMO's job. They were my observations uh, at, a, at a level above. Uh, AEMO's job is to operate the system and markets in accordance with ANEO and to provide evidence and facts to support policy making. We do not have a rulemaking function and nor should we. Our job, and we certainly don't have a function in terms of the social or political dimensions of the transition other than providing evidence, robust engineering scientific evidence uh, to support what uh, our, our process. So I, I see them as quite separate activities. All right. um, there, is, there is one other entity in Australia which has some similar characteristics which I'm on the board of, which is the new payments platform which is in the banking system and it's um, I mean, it's not as um, comprehensive in its, its functions as uh, AMO by any means, but it's owned by, it's, it's, a, it's a not-for-profit corporation as well. It's owned by the participating institutions, which are all the banks, uh, and the Reserve Bank, and I'm the independent director on that board. Uh, the rest are representatives. So it has a lot of similarities, and it, and it, also, and it basically... Um, operates a, a platform, a system through which fast payments are made. So I, I, I think it's a model that can work. Um, one reason why I think it, it makes sense for AMO to be heavily involved in system planning, and it's the question of how far it goes down the procurement path that I think is uh, the, the, the debate to be had, is that they really do have the best information. And you know, one of my criticisms of AMO in the past was that it didn't play the strategic role that it could be in saying, well, we can see all this is going on and this is how we think it could play out and if that's, this is how it's play, played out, this is likely to be where, um, where we need to strengthen the system. Um, so it's at least putting the proposition and it's done that for a long time with the statement of opportunities. It doesn't have a conflict in the sense that it doesn't own the asset. Certainly the separation between the asset owner and, and, and the um, operator I think is pretty important. Um, so the governance is important. I, I, I actually think that right now it's, it's, it's serving us reasonably well and it's really just being able to keep up with the extraordinary pace of change that our institutions are facing that I think we have to worry more about than that, that kind of very customised ownership structure. 
Thanks. Um, I, there's obviously one more question. We've got time for one more. Uh, yeah, hi. Um, Andrew Hersher from the Department of Environment and Energy. Um, I have a governance-related question as well. Um, Drew, you touched on um, um, that the states um, are doing different things and uh, the Commonwealth is also doing different things as well. And um, again, this is against the, ba the a backdrop of, you know, increasing um, complexity and the, the rapid changes that are happening. Um, and so, so my question is about the Energy Council, uh, really, and whether, whether or not they're still, I guess, equipped to deal with the, the, the complexity and the speed at which these changes are happening or are some changes necessary there? So there's a couple of sort of fundamental starting points. Let's start with the Constitution of Australia, which is always a good place to start, <laughs> um, which, which makes the states responsible for energy, not the Commonwealth. Uh, and hence, any structure and this extraordinary machine we have called the national electricity market, and indeed the gas transmission system that, that, that crosses state borders, uh, has to, if to be managed in any sort of optimised way, requires this cooperative federalism model, um, for which COAG has become the sort of the, the shorthand branding of it. So, I uh, I think the the foundations are absolutely clear, but it but it operates on a consensus model. Uh, the national electricity law and national gas law, I'm sure you are familiar, but for those that don't, uh, happen to be schedules to an act of the South Australian Parliament um, that are applied in all jurisdictions through applications acts passed by every other parliament. And, those, and the primary act can only be amended by unanimous agreement of the nine Australian governments and the blessing of the upper house of the South Australian Parliament, by the way, on the way through. Uh, which one should never take for granted. The, the fundamentals of that model, I think, are sound given the fundamentals of our federation. The agility of it is the, is the point that Alan Finkel called out on the panel that Zoe was a member of in the Finkel Review, so-called Finkel Review, one of many Finkel Reviews. Uh, the, I mean, the, the conclusion that, that Alan and his panel drew was that the system was, was my, one of my propositions as well. The system was not able to cope quickly enough uh, with the, the disruption that's occurring and the Energy Security Board was the principal response to that uh, and that's got a whole lot of fast-track mechanisms around rule changes and the roles of ministers in it. My proposition is that we're now starting to see traction from that new model. Uh, we saw ministers in Perth just a couple of weeks ago make some very important directions back to the Energy Security Board with Dr Schott's complete endorsement and support in the room. She wasn't being tasked against her will. She was actually embracing the opportunity. Uh, and so I think those mechanisms um, to accelerate the ability of nine governments to make consensus policy uh, start and just are now starting to work in some quite significant ways. It's not perfect. They don't agree on everything, um, but they're agreeing on a lot more and they're acting a lot more quickly now. 
having arrived at a discussion around the Australian Constitution, we might uh, we might actually try and wrap it up there, um, <laughs> so that we can get you out uh, more or less on time. Um, please join with me uh, in thanking the wonderful panelists we've had this afternoon. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.